When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we start the show this week, we just want to remind y'all about TBR, Book Riot's new subscription service that offers tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. If you've been dreaming of a stitch fix for books like you know we have here on this show, we're happy to remind you that it's here now. You tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for, then just kick back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR has plans to to let you receive hardcover books in the mail or to receive recommendations by email email so there's an option for every budget. Visit mytbr.co today to sign up. That's mytbr.co. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 281. We're recording on Thursday, October 4th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookright.com which is seven years old seven i can't seven believe year, it october 3rd 2011 it was um a very special day on the internet for us i uh, clint <laughs> and i were talking about it yesterday and i remember um sitting in a starbucks with my laptop my old my old macbook air which is maybe my favorite computer i've ever owned that that original macbook air watching stats you know geeking out mm-hmm. and stuff being excited about the first day traffic can i brag for a minute I, i've given you some yes. but i think this is the best one i've got for you so october 2011 18,852 unique people read bookriot.com that you know, there's more page views and visits earth. in our first mm-hmm. month on earth last month 1.9 million people. A hundred times more. More than a hundred times more. <laughs> that is it. How do you like them apples? I, you know, those are really tasty apples. Those are good apples. Actually. <laughs> they're good apples. It's, it, the numbers blow me away. Like, they're, yep. I have all of that. Like, it, but it feels like we've been doing this forever, but also, like, it just started. All those mm-hmm. kinds of feelings. Um, Rebecca, and I think all you of us, don't have a kid, but that sentiment right there... That is a parent thing about your kids. You yeah. Just so you know, like that is a thing. Like it feels forever, but it just happened. Like I don't know what that sort of like temporal vertigo that happens. Like you know, they say about parenting, the days are the days are long, but the years are short. I feel that way mm-hmm. about the site. I think I think that's true. Yeah. Yes, I think that's true too. Like the only thing that I've the only other thing that I've done for seven years or longer in my life is be married. Like mm. this is the longest I've done that. Like worked right. on the same project. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> That's, that, that'll do it. That's true. Yeah. That's, that's, I, I'll try to find Alex, our developer, who's been with us from the beginning. Put uh, He got a screen cap of what, not what it looked like on day one, but it was effectively the same, what the website looked on day four um, from the mm-hmm. Wayback Machine. Yeah, the I'll way put back. a link in the show notes um, so you can see what Book Riot looked like on, I guess this would be October 7th. Uh, 2011. So anyway, yeah. happy birthday to us. Thank you guys for... Some of you I know have been around um, as contributors, mm-hmm, as, as readers, as various kinds of um, our, our BR family. So thank you for, for doing that. I've got follow-up uh, I'd like to Hit tell me. you about. So Chicago Powell's, you were expressing it's dismay. It's real, but the th- it, there's a little family drama in that the original Powell's was founded by Powell uh, Sr. And okay. one of his kids came over to Portland and started their mm-hmm. own pile. So they're they're related, but not fiscally related. Um, there were a, there used to be a few different stores. I, I I deduced from you know who I was visiting, and I would have been visiting where I would have been at the Lincoln Park um, mm-hmm. uh, Powell's back in nineteen ninety eight is probably when I was there. The one I remember. So that was that was cool to see. Thank you for those of you who wrote in about that. So it, there both is and is not a Powell's. Um, it's it's at Schrodinger's pals um, about uh, about <laughs> that. Also, title. so the other one I wanted to talk about is um, vampires. Um, we had are a, they a, a thing? They are a thing. Ariel um, wrote in to say, "I thought you should know there is a YA book series called Vampires by Justin Somper. Haven't read them, but there they are." So 
if wordplay, if if quality wordplay alone is enough to get you to check out a series, there there you go. Vampires by Justin Somper is already a thing. So I'm glad that I exists. Feel, yeah, I feel a little bit better about the world knowing that that's real. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's that, and I guess that takes us into our. Is that all our follow up? I thought I had something else. Hold on. Let me, I guess that's. Oh, I know what it was. Uh, quick plug. Most recent episode of Annotated is live. Um, my bribe to you, listener, is that I, I um, shamelessly employed my children in the introduction. Um, the episode is called The Patron Saint of Libraries. So I'm going to say no more. If you don't want to listen to it, if that's not enough to get you to listen to it, if you haven't listened to it already, then you don't, I can't help you. There's nothing I can do. That, that's what it is. But it's episode 16. It's out now, but link in the show notes there. A super interesting episode. And one I had on my list from the very beginning, I will say that. Um, as well. So let me do their first sponsor. It's The Rule of One, the first read in an epic series by real-life sisters Ashley Saunders and Leslie Saunders. In the near future United States, a one-child policy called The Rule of One is ruthlessly enforced. But Ava has a secret. She has an identical twin sister, Mira. For 18 years, Ava and Mira have lived as one person down to the most telling detail. But when their charade is exposed, their worst nightmare begins. Branded as traitors, hunted as fugitives, Ava and Mira rush headlong into a terrifying unknown. How far will they go to stay alive? Read The Rule of One today. That's The Rule of One by Real Life Sisters Ashley Saunders and Leslie Saunders. You know, I think doing annotated narration has helped me with my ad reads. That was pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty good. I'm well, uh, doing let's put the... it this way. Better than I used to be. Uh, the, the, the bar is low. But uh, you know, yeah, there we go. <laughs> here is a thing that will re- probably remain true for the entirety of the time mm-hmm. that we do this work is that I will have weird work dreams. <laughs> and they, they, <laughs> I used to have like in the early days of Book Riot when I was managing social media, I use my work stress dream used to be like Clint, our COO, mm-hmm. gets a hold of the hoot suite and. <laughs> tweets about KU basketball and won't give the won't give me back the Twitter. You know, on, the, on a week, work stress stream, that's pretty low. That's KU basketball. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's like Freudian for something else. I don't know. That's not that bad. We've seen no, social media faux like, pas way worse. That's that. true. That's true. Um, <laughs> like, but that I think this did actually happen during March Madness, like Book Riot's uh, first year of March Madness. Clint like accidentally tweeted from the right, wrong account. Sure. And people were like, why does Book Riot care about basketball? <laughs> A few of us are from Kansas, okay? Mm, um, but last week, Jeff, I know hearing about people's dreams is like not a thing people want to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Last week, I had a dream that we were sitting around talking about annotated, and we were like, you know, we're so much better at this narration thing than we were a year ago. We should just re-record the original season. Oh, God. <laughs> no, thank you. No. no. But uh, that's real. Having done that kind of like performance reading, I think mm. it does make a difference for our... It's almost I mean, I do the ad spots something you get better at it. It. I don't yeah. know if this is a thing people know about Call practice, Malcolm but, Gladwell. <laughs> yeah, right. Or what's his name? Uh, Anders Ericsson, who wrote um, Peak. Yeah. Anders Ericsson? Is it, it doesn't matter. Uh, I think it, that it, was it, him. If you get good at... If you do something a lot, you'll get better at it. I know this is... It uh, turns out... Um, self-improvement development hashtag um, blessed about that um <laughs> welcome to the barnes and noble podcast which is what we do these speaking days speaking of hashtag blessed here we go <laughs> you know uh okay where do we want to start here um well so let's go in the order that the stories yeah broke. all right okay yeah that's right that's that's good okay so the first story that we got this was yesterday was that um Barnes and Noble, months after they let the previous CEO go, isn't Demos Parneros, the he of the very complicated, multi-sided lawsuit. Um, <laughs> how am I doing so far? You've you uh, got so, your nail on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so not only has it been months without a CEO, Barnes and Noble doesn't have anyone slotted in to fill that seat. They are still looking for a search firm. Like, they're still searching for the firm that will help them search for the CEO. It's like a Silicon Valley bit. <laughs> it, 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 it really is. Um, 
Lynn Riggio, one of the founders of Barnes and Noble and who's now the chairman of the board, uh, said that they haven't yet picked a recruiting firm. It's not easy to find the right person. Notably, Riggio has been acting as CEO. So like he's having a hard time finding the right person to take the chair that he's sitting in. Uh, he says the company needs me right now. We'll see for how long. I know we've both had some side eye for like how maybe Riggio is a problem here. How big of a problem is he? So doesn't look like Barnes and Noble is going to have a new CEO in the near future, uh, given that they have not identified a firm to help them find one yet. And then... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, it's and then just, that leads to the this next, is just a the special, next story. It's a special time, Jeff. The next story is that basically Barnes and Noble is considering a sale, right? So we'll get to that mm-hmm. in a minute. But I just want to, I just want to, I'd like to paint you a picture, you know, podcast or radio <laughs> of the mind. So what we have going on right here is who Len Regio, who, as we all know, is not a problem because he told us in uh, um, uh, uh, an article in the New York Times about how he might be a problem that he wasn't. So you know how that goes. Who has gotten rid of um, five I'm a CEOs really nice guy, I swear. in the last four years, or four CEOs in the last five years, who is the acting CEO, has not yet found a firm to find the new CEO, but one of the suitors to buy Barnes & Noble might be Len Rijo himself. So he is acting as the interim CEO for a company where he's fired CEOs, but he also just might buy the company. Does that sound healthy to you? Does that does that feel like does that feel this good? Does that me, feel like does that feel intentional to you? This it feels it's real interesting how that has shaken out. It feels to me like those people who have been divorced five times and are like, I just haven't met the right one. You know, like Riggio is talking about how hard it is to find a good CEO to take his spot. And he has fired four or five CEOs over the last not many more years than that. When if nothing else, he is undeniably the common denominator. Like he may not be the only problem, but Mm -hmm. you know, he's gotten divorced five times. I mean, it can't be easy to be CEO of this company where Riggio has the means to just buy the company. I mean, talk about the sort of Damocles, right? Like, it's not that just you can get fired, but like, I, I could at any moment sort of just acquire the company. Right. Like, that's, that's a hard. That's a hard. That's a that's a hard thing to live with. I would think. I think also like why, if he was going to, if he were going to buy the company, why hasn't he just done it? Um, isn't is a thing that I have wondered. And then tied up in this that Barnes and Noble is considering considering a sale, is that. So one of the companies that holds stock in the sale yes. has been making rapid accumulations of stock, which could potentially be a move for a hostile takeover. And so the board mm-hmm. of Barnes and Noble has approved a shareholders' rights plan that, I mean, this is all like business legal speak, right. will maximize yes. the likelihood of a successful outcome to the strategic alternatives process. Like, uh-huh. are those even words? Well, um, we buried the lead part, a little yeah. bit, yeah. But yeah, you're right. There's a po- it's called the poison pill clause for an acquirer because right. basically the shares become so expensive that you don't want to acquire them. So the the report was in Barnes & Noble. And this this happened real quick after the the news about not hiring a search firm yet. Like it almost was to bury that. Mm-hmm. It felt like it broke all at once. Yeah. But basically, Barnes & Noble said expressions of interest from multiple parties in making an offer to acquire the company. So they have a creation of a formal review process to evaluate the retailer's strategic alternatives. Among the parties interested in making an offer for Barnes & Noble's founder and chairman, Len- Leonard Rijo, who, I knew this, but I had forgotten, owns 19% of outstanding Barnes and Noble shares. And he's promised to support mm-hmm. any transaction recommended by the committee, especially if it's his own offer, whatever. Well, and that 19% uh, stake makes him the largest shareholder. Yes. Right. Right. Um, interesting to, to say the least. Um, under the terms of the rights plan of a person or group without board approval acquires 20% more or more of Barnes and Noble's common stack or announces a tender offer than other shareholders would be entitled to preferred shares at 50% discount. Which would dilute the original. Yeah, it's a math. It's a math thing where the shares that you would need to acquire become so exorbitantly expensive mm-hmm. that the cost to buy it gets untenable to most people. As what that particular one is called, the poison pill. I don't know. Like, 
I don't, I, do we believe this? This thing about a party or parties unknown that's buying rapid material acquisition of a stock is super interesting to me. Like someone out there is buying a whole bunch of Barnes and Noble stock, and we don't know who it is. Is wild. That is a wild thing to be happening. I don't know if they're doing it speculatively because they think it's going to happen. I think it's it's weird. I feel like we're we're hitting the end game here. I mean, I know I've said that before mm-hmm. about Barnes and Noble, but if this doesn't go through, then it really looks dysfunctional. Am I wrong about that? I know. I think you're right there. That like apparently there are several possible buyers. Um, if none of them decide to go through with it, or if Barnes and Noble can't reach an agreement with them and presumably the like one of the ones that's not Lynn Riggio right then then they're still just in the place where they have Lynn Riggio sitting as CEO and not successfully hiring mm-hmm. a new CEO and then maybe he just buys it back like I don't even know what I think should happen at this yeah. point we don't know who the possible buyer is if it would be a good, uh, you know, a favorable option for Barnes and Noble's future or not. But it's also hard to imagine. Well, it's not hard to imagine that it could get worse. But like, mm. how much like how much the wheels are really wobbly at mm. some point, they're going to come off. And it it just feels like we're getting to the point where it's more likely than not that the wheels will come off. Yeah, I guess I'm going to do a, a quick silver lining about this before we move on, which is that Barnes and that this all this is going on says that it could be that some of Barnes and Noble performance is not about you know actually moving units of uh, Hank Green's newest novel, right? It's not actually right. about selling books; it's about this other junk um, that's all going this on at the top. Yeah, because like Border Story, we talked about before, a lot of their stores were profitable, and there was a world in which Borders continues with you know get acquired or something. A lot of that was about mismanagement. It wasn't actually about selling widgets um, and then Blu-ray widgets and then paperback widgets. It was just straight up ego and mismanagement and miscalculation, mm-hmm. um, which m- makes me wonder if they get through the other side of this and there still is a thing called Barnes & Noble led by someone in a new, more stable situation. Maybe there's upside here. I mean, Yeah, maybe. It's kind of like... You know, if the runner's running slow, you want that because they're injured, right? Because then they may not be injured. They can run faster. I, I'm not exactly sure here. But that this piece, I mean, there is a lot going on here that's not about actually running the business at Barnes & Noble. That yeah, it's, certainly we're not on the inside. We don't know for sure. It does seem like Lynn Riggio plays a role in the dynamics here. So it's also... I kind of am in a place of like, it's hard to imagine how this is going to get better for the next CEO if Lynn Riggio remains in the picture. The pattern so far is not encouraging. Would be really interesting to see what happened if they were. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hear, I just made up this. We're going to play Let's Make a Deal. Okay. You remember Let's Make a Deal Three Doors? I do. Monty Hall. So, door number one. This one's open. This is Lynn Riggio takes Barnes & Noble private and is the CEO and owner for the foreseeable future of our lives caring about Barnes & Noble. That's door number one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Door number two is Barnes & Noble doesn't sell. They get a new CEO and it's a public company for the foreseeable futures in our lives. That's door number two. Door number three, you have no idea what it is. It's some other future. (laughs) Which one do you take? Oh, you know what? Actually, I think I take door number three. I do too, Rebecca Shinsky. Because <laughs> I'm, I wrote these down as you were saying them, uh-huh. so that I could look at my options. Because that's the kind of girl I am. Mm-hmm. And. Riggio running it and taking it private. I don't have much faith in that because things are just no. not going so well. Right. And then. Barnes and Noble not selling, but getting a new CEO who would have to interact with the board and Riggio, one assumes. Mm. It feels like that is that definition of insanity of you know yes. doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Like why Barnes would it and, get Noble and Noble and Noble and Noble and Noble and Noble? <laughs> right. It's so like we know. Right. 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 So we know we kind of know what to expect mm. there, and it's not awesome. And I don't feel confident about number one. So I'm I'm going to roll the dice. Yeah, could be a goat. Else happens. But maybe Door that's good. <laughs> right? Maybe it's a smart goat, Jeff. <laughs> Super smart goat. Um, wasn't that like the booby prize? Often in late, make a deal. There'd be a goat sitting there. I think so. Yeah. 
It's been a long time if only since that, I was... If the show had lasted to like this age of yeah. you know, like a hipster farmers, everyone would want the <laughs> that's goat. That's right. Everyone would be choosing the goat. Um, yeah, that's funny. It's It's been a long time since I was uh, pretending to be sick and watching Let's Make a Deal at Home um, in junior high. <laughs> So anyway. every malingerer's favorite. Yeah, every every gold bricker's only choice when you had four, you know, had basic cable. Um, let's do another sponsor. It's me. I'm up again. <laughs> it's you again. You are. This episode of the Book Riot Podcast is sponsored by A. A. Knopf, publisher of Blood Communion, the latest in the Vampire Chronicles by the one, the only, Anne Rice. Latest in the legendary Vampire Chronicles, told from Lestat's point of view, it's an intimate look at the intriguing and mysterious vampire's rise to power, as well as his innermost thoughts, feelings, fears, and struggles. The Vampire Chronicles are coming to the silver screen. Hulu has picked up the series because everything is adapted now. This is the Queen of Vampires at her best with her most beloved character. This is Blood Communion by the one and only Anne Rice from... Alfred A. Knopf. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. You know, we it's didn't, a rite of passage when you get when you get into books to be surprised to learn that you pronounce how the, to say Knopf. Yeah, yeah. We didn't. I didn't put it in the podcast agenda because I don't think there's a ton to talk about with it. But since we're talking about how mm. sooner or later everything gets adapted or readapted, it's <laughs> worth just mentioning that this week it was announced that Netflix has acquired the Chronicles of Narnia for a new series. Uh, you know what? I didn't even. I can rattle them off of the time I had the new ones this week. Circe by Madeline Miller got optioned. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, it story did. I missed today. that. Yep. That's exciting. And uh, the Wheel of Time. Amazon okay. is doing the Wheel of Time for sure, which I think oh, we knew they were ambitious. thinking about it. So we're we're in second wave um, adaptation where you're for Narnia you're getting a, a second like Lord of the Rings you're getting a second modern adaptation. Mm-hmm. Wild stuff. I'm trying to think now. I'm so I'm so. My soul is so calloused to adaptation news that what would what would wake me up? <laughs> oh, we play this game like once a year. What would wake um, me up now? Besides the anything? Gilead adaptation. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's like someone knocking at your door and giving a hundred bucks. Like that's too specific. Like you can't. I mean, I'd get excited about that, but but like for an industry wide, I can't think. It, there's I've only got one thing, and it would never happen. But I've got one thing and one thing only that would actually like wake me up a little bit do you have anything maybe i want to hear yours first rebooting harry potter oh just readapting all the original novels new cast new directors that one is the one you don't think it's too soon i'm not saying i would soon. do it i'm saying what would we what would make me sit up and pay attention oh, that would okay. do it. yeah that would be that would be a bold move yeah it's been 20 Certainly. years 20 years it's next year since the first movie gosh. came out the Narnia movies happen since the the, the, the that Narnia takes. So you could see. I mean, they're redoing mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings or something. Who knows what that's going to be? I, so uh, there, that would be this the is, one. I think that's the only one that would be like, holy Moses! Um, wow, yeah. that's a big deal. From yeah, mine is not nearly that culturally significant. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Like maybe to a a portion of our audience um there was a tv series made of the babysitters club oh there you in go that's my childhood one. and i would 100 percent watch <laughs> that now like i still know the theme song so if they if they brought that back um i i could get into it i could get excited about a babysitters club retake yeah yeah that i mean be- it's we're getting another Watchmen. We already had one Watchmen. I mean, we we are really are in these second wave adaptations. I guess the first thing is happening is the ones that were adaptations of beloved properties that kind of like went over like a lead balloon. We're doing yeah. those again. We haven't you know, yet done one of like a triple A AAA property that went well. I um, would take again. a good adaptation of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, yep, that's the lead balloon theory, right? We've mm-hmm. tried that; it didn't work. Try it again. I would try that as yeah. well. So you know, we didn't even put these in the agenda because it's just, it's like putting, brushing so your teeth on your to-do list. It's just, it's just there. Right. It's, I mean, you just do that. It's what it is. But uh, in case you were wondering, everything mm-hmm. does continue to be adapted. <laughs> That's right. It's adaptations all the way down. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, okay. While we're in retailer hell, you want to talk about Amazon? <laughs> I mean, we might as well. 
it got a lot of pickup on Insider Slack. You know, sometimes that's my indication of a story I'm not sure if is interesting. But Amazon this week announced they were raising the wages to all 350,000 employees, by the way, which is a bonkers number. Mm-hmm. $15 an hour from the get-go if you get hired there. They did then also take away some perks, which included performance bonuses for mm-hmm. hourly workers. And I don't quite have the details, but... On your year anniversary of working there, you'd get a two-share stock grant, you know. So that's an incentive, but they're not doing those anymore. Mm-hmm. The starting wage I heard is it was around thirteen fifty. Um, so it's not that big of a raise. You get something else. It looks to me like it's kind of coming out in the wash. Like think about it this way: if I was an Amazon employee and I was making thirteen fifty with these incentives, would I take that or fifteen dollars an hour from the get go? I think I would take fifteen dollars an hour from the get go because then I could have that money right away. I could make, maybe I don't want Amazon stock. Maybe productivity bonuses are small or something else like that. I think it's a shuffling deck chairs that the ultimate product of it is it's good PR because Amazon can mm-hmm. say we pay what some are proposing to be the federal minimum wage that doesn't exist yet. You know, there's thing that's going on. Yeah. So I think it's a PR move. Does it impact the lives of Amazon workers in a net negative or net positive way? I, I'm shrug emoji. That's where I am. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And it's just because there are so many different things being said about it Mm -hmm. um, that like, I think obviously the best PR move would be we're increasing our hourly wage and our workers get to keep their stock options and incentive bonuses. Um, And those incentive bonuses are not insignificant. Um, Some of them, some of the incentives are dependent on good attendance and hitting productivity targets. You could get up to 8% a month um, or 16% a month during peak November and December seasons. Really not insignificant, but an Amazon spokesperson told CNBC that they can confirm that all hourly operations and customer service employees will see an increase in their total compensation yeah. as a result of this announcement. So that's either true or it's not true. Um, but a they lot tend of, not to lie like that companies like yeah, that is a pretty, that, that's, there's not a lot of plausible so deniability. It's, in that one confusing then because there have been a lot of people responding on Twitter. Bernie Sanders was praising this on Twitter and a lot of Amazon workers have responded directly to that tweet. Some of those conversations are embedded in this piece from The Verge that we're looking at saying that they're going to be taking home three to $6,000 less per year now um, because of this. Some of it is also related to the fact that they have hourly workers who are making more than this $15 yes, minimum right. wage. And that's really where it's catchy is that if you were making above the 15, you're still losing the incentives. Uh, so it's maybe a, you know, a, potentially is a benefit or a wash for the folks who are under $15 an hour, but could be um, detrimental to the folks who are above $15 an hour. Amazon, like, I don't know, they're so strategic and canny about their PR mm-hmm. most of the time that I do believe this is a PR move, but I also would think that they thought through like, oh, if it turns out that this is just a PR move and we're actually not benefiting people, of course, workers are going to talk about it, but they're doing that anyway. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to make of this without more information. I mean, Amazon, I mean, Amazon's labor practices have um, transcended the discussion in just the book world alone. It's a its a mm-hmm. national issue. Like People are worried, interested yeah. in how Amazon's workers are treated. I think it's, it's almost like a political thing where it's so much easier to say, all of our employees get 15 hours an hour or more. Clap, 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 clap. Right. Mm-hmm. So much harder to say, well, it starts at 1350, but if you're here an hour, you're here, you get, and there's 8%, no one cares about, they don't, they don't right. hear that, right? They're like, $15 an hour, they can take that out, shut up Bernie Sanders about getting on her back, right? I mean, mm-hmm. frankly, that's part of it. It's just an easier, it's a simpler message. And in this kind of public relation, public political messaging, fine, $15 an hour, we're going to shuffle some of the deck chairs, no one cares. I mean, no one, I'm saying, writ large, people don't care, because we can say, Look, we pay more than the federal minimum wage in all the places. The thing that got me thinking about, I don't know if you saw me doing this on Insiders too, is there, there's, there's, I think there's a careful thing, especially the book retail industry has to do with getting on Amazon about its working conditions and pay mm-hmm. because booksellers don't get $15 an hour. Warehouse no. employees in a lot of these places aren't – it's hard to say – boy, Amazon, you sure treat your workers crappy for giving them $15 an hour with no bonuses when we pay Barnes & Noble cashiers eight seventy five. dollars That's rough. 
that's really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and forget about independent bookstores and all those other things. Like, there's a conversation there that I, it's I I'm not the one that's positioned to make it, but like a real hard look at the working conditions and pay for the people on fr- that are in front line and warehouses around and the publishing industry and booksellers and sales. Like the good guys in the Amazon versus the world book story. I'm not sure that it's not that easy. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong it's, about. Yeah, that, no, but I think no, it's no. Tough. I think you're right. It's it's not that easy. There is a lot of nuance to it, and publishing and independent booksellers certainly like to throw stones at Amazon, but there are not a ton of independent booksellers making fifteen dollars an hour. Um, very few, in fact, I think, are making fifteen dollars an hour or getting health insurance. Um, Publish like the lower ranks of publishing hinge or historically have hinged on like getting an internship that you could afford to work unpaid in the beginning because you came from some kind of privilege that allowed you to do that. And then being willing to like live in New York City working for $24,000 a year, probably working multiple jobs because of the because the like you get to for the privilege of working in publishing, you get to make less money. Um, It's the trade like it's been sold as this trade off of like, oh, you get to work around books. And that is one of the factors I think that goes into the ways that independent bookstores can function and can choose to pay their workers or not is they there are plenty of people who love books enough that they are willing to take, they want that job and they're willing to take it Mm -hmm. to work around books and to be on the front line of getting books into the world and supporting literary culture um, that it can be taken advantage of whether that's the intention or not doesn't really matter. I don't think that most like owners of independent bookstores are out to exploit. No, I don't think so either. But there is a lot of sentimentality like romanticism around working in books and that allows publishers and it allows bookstores to pay employees less because, Oh, they, they'll be so happy working in books. Like it, Mm -hmm. it almost won't matter that they're not working, that they're not making as much, but we've heard on Slack from, uh, from booksellers who, you know, were working at an independent bookstore because that was a job that they loved and were good at, but also had like three other jobs on the side because Mm -hmm. that's what was required to pay their bills. Like now that's also a choice they made. No one makes you become an independent bookseller um, and take a job that is underpaid. But I I do think that we're very much in a glass houses throwing stones situation Mm. when when publishing and indie booksellers start talking about Amazon conditions um, because the like the base rates of of pay for folks is a very real concern and it's That's one right. that is has not always been handled very well by by publishing and by booksellers i mean not to put too fine a point on it but there's a reason james patterson is giving out holiday bonuses grants to booksellers like it's, that it's mm. he's not giving them to executives at prh right or barnes right. and noble or you know the owners of bookstores this is frontline booksellers because we know implicitly and patterson i think is implicit that is, they don't get paid very well. They just don't, and so that's one of the reasons he's mm-hmm. doing it. Is yeah, right. If they were paid, like, and, if they were getting forty five grand in healthcare, he wouldn't be doing this. Just wouldn't. Right. Wouldn't make sense. Right. Like, and we both know several people who own independent bookstores, and like nobody goes into that business because they think they're going to get rich. You know, no. like that's that's this is a thing you do because you love it. Yeah, uh, and. It's, but there are real costs to that and acknowledging um, what the business practices are all the way around, mm-hmm. I think, is important. Yeah, and it's one of those things, too, where we give – we, collectively, the Booknet, Barnes & Noble a pass or more of a pass than we would if they were Amazon for paying their cashiers eight seventy five because mm-hmm. they're under siege. Does it matter if you're under siege or not? I mean, is that is that an excuse to, mm-hmm. to pay people so poorly? Like – Again, I was doing some. I was trying to find some research about you know average pay for booksellers in the country. There's not a lot out there. It's confederated, so it's there's no clearinghouse for data. But you know, uh, and again, I'm doing off the top of my head, so I'm not going to say the person's name or the bookstore they work for. But they're a New York City bookstore talking about New York City's minimum wage is going up to fifteen dollars an hour on January first of 2019. And they're like, you know, it's great. We it's people should pay more, but I don't think in this particular case they're thinking about the challenges of running an independent bookstore in uh, New York City, which is a really expensive market. And my first thought was, well, if it's so expensive, the employees need to make more to live there. Like, why, mm-hmm. why is the store getting – need this special accommodation? Really, this should be about the employees. But like if Amazon had said something like that about Seattle, 
think of the jumping on <laughs> that would have right. happened, right? Like if just. I don't know. I want to. Tr- I, I want to. Right. If Amazon Jeff Bezos were out and, there, like yes. they don't know how hard it is to how expensive it is to run a corporation in Seattle. In Seattle. Like, <laughs> yeah. Do you think Bill Gates loves his rent out there? I don't know. But again, I, I don't. I don't want to use it as like a shield against the the complaints against Amazon. I think it's worth though thinking about the same sorts of issues within the publishing and book selling world itself. Like they're out there. That's what it is. How do you measure up? Are, do we feel comfortable with the way about our industry measures up in this regard? If you feel good about it, there you go. Just think about it. I, I certainly started thinking about it. I, I really, I really got interested. I was like, huh? I wonder. Um, and I asked some people, and let's just say I didn't encounter a bookseller who worked on an hourly basis that made anywhere close to fifteen dollars an hour. I haven't seen it. Uh, Podcastofbookwriter.com. If you got more info, I'd love to know it. All right. Where do you want to go? Well, let's go to maybe something a little delightful. Yes. At least a little at least a little whimsical. Mm-hmm. This is a, a a perhaps trend that's beginning that I think I could <laughs> <laughs> I could get behind this. Earlier was it earlier this year the John Oliver show yes. did the story about the gay bunny yes. where all the proceeds went from the children's book went uh basically to something in opposition of Mike Pence. Stephen Colbert is jumping on that bandwagon uh last week on a show last week colbert who grew up in south carolina um announced that um in response to president trump's tweets about hurricane florence and particularly those in which a boat was shipwrecked on trump's property during the storm Mm. uh the or sorry the boat was shipwrecked on someone else's property during the storm and trump tweeted at least you got a nice boat out Mm. of the deal um stephen colbert has designed a children's book called whose boat is this boat comments that don't help in the aftermath of a hurricane by donald trump accidentally (laughs) and uh the book will come out on november 6th you can pre-order it now and all proceeds will benefit organizations that are working with hurricane victims especially the foundation for the carolinas the one sc fund the north carolina disaster relief fund and wold central kitchen and that's you, like this is just um i think this is kind of a silver lining it's a uh, like i don't want to live in the world where the president does this kind of stuff frequently enough that late night hosts may have to make books out of them and then turn the books into fundraising opportunities but it's interesting to see that books are the, one of the ways that they're going here it wasn't just stephen colbert like getting mad about a tweet and being like hey let's all donate money together books as the vehicle for some of this awareness and fundraising is interesting to me mm-hmm. yeah it's an it's an interesting little like twist of the knife um of like you know it's almost like re it's like reappropriation i guess of like taking something and trying to put a spin on it to use it to critique the place it comes from mm-hmm. it's it is weird that like it's a little cottage industry of like late night personalities to do a satirical children's book. Like when it, it's weird. Like I wonder why a children's book. Like it's just it's just strange. To, it's strange to me. Like I find it kind of <laughs> delightful, but it's like a children's book out of these negatives. It's just weird. Mm. Is it is it like putting rabbit ears on Trump? Is like that's the kind of the yeah. idea. It's like yeah, I think like they're not these children's books aren't actually intended for children like this is obviously for the right for the delight of the adults watching the show and who are going to buy the books and support the causes but it's like this it's just a tiny act of resistance i think like a moment of making humor out of something that is utterly humorless and should be taken seriously but Colbert and John Oliver do a nice job of that walking that line of here is the thing that's obviously unacceptable that the president mm-hmm. behaves this way. Um, let, can we both call out its unacceptability and also maybe find a moment for ourselves of delight in, in like a, a tiny way of coping? Uh, so if you if this floats your boat, you can get <laughs> that. Just happened. I am I like kind it. of not proud like of it. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you can get whose boat is this boat on November sixth. You know, speaking right of uh, time. speaking of tiny moments of delight, um, mm. I haven't listened to this yet, but I'm looking forward to it. But a new podcast from U.S. Yes. poet laureate Tracy K. Smith. Uh, there's a link in the show notes and the Poetry Foundation called the Slowdown will be a weekday podcast and radio feature 
That is a five-minute program encouraging listeners to make a daily space for poetry in an increasingly busy and chaotic world. Um, Smith will read works by writers from around the country and the world and explore how poetry helps us better understand life, history, art, science, uh, and uh, everything. Debut November 26th on all pl- podcast platforms and then early next year, public radio stations will make it available. Um, very, very cool. I am into this. Very cool. I think we all need more poetry, and this is a great way. It's a very smart way to get people to consume a little bit more. Like, there are ways you can go online and read a poem a day. I think that the Poetry Foundation might even eat, be willing. Like, it's either the Poetry Foundation or there's some app that will send you mm-hmm. a poem a day to read. But putting a nice poem in your ears for five minutes once a day, like, talk about a nice small act of resistance or self care. I think this could be very lovely. There's the trailers available. It's in the show. Um, it's in the this piece that will be in the show notes. You can scroll down and find it. I have two things to say that are completely unrelated to. Well, they're related, but they're not related to this news. One is, can you okay. believe that the name of the executive vice president and chief content officer for American Public Media, his name is Dave Kansas? Like that's that's <laughs> a made up name. It's a that's a Dave, great name, Dave Kansas. It's so crazy. Also, I I I'm gonna spoil. It's, Someday I hope to do an annotated episode about this. I don't know if people know this, but Poetry Foundation, which is the the parent organization of the Poetry Magazine, I think I have my I think this is the the right story. But the Eli Lilly heiress, the, the heiress to the Eli Lilly pharmaceutical fortune, left Poetry Magazine in her will a hundred million dollars. What? It was like ten years ago. It's just it, she left hundred million dollars to the Poetry Foundation and like twenty million dollars to her cat, and that was it. Like that—that <laughs> that was her will. How about them apples? Those are good apples. Speaking of poetry and other things that we didn't put in the show notes, but that we should drop a link mm-hmm. to for people who are interested, there was an amazing expose in the Huffington Post this oh, morning. Yes. Like a long read about the poetry beef on Instagram. And the unmasking of Atticus, who, if you are not familiar, is an Instagram poet who appears at his events wearing a mask, like so that he is very mysterious. Um, and there, it was bananas. Like I, I want to do an annotated episode. I know. About- I was so mad. Now, see, when I read a good literary story, now I get mad. I'm like, dang it. <laughs> there just might be. I feel like there's more meat on that bone. Uh, it's. Mm. That was a good one. So we'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested in the in that at all. Um, there was some big picture stuff about how people like in the wake of Rupi Kaur have become famous yes. for poetry on Instagram. Atticus has his poetry published by Andrews McMeal as well. And there are like these other Instagram poets that compete with them, but maybe they joined up like two of the competing poets joined up together to unmask Atticus, who now doesn't seem to care that he was unmasked. And it's a like it's a whole thing. It's like it's the closest wild. to the re- it's like the real housewives of Instagram poetry. Yeah, it's it like West the- Side Story. <laughs> it's wild. It, it's great. And they're poetry fighting instead of dance fighting. <laughs> yeah, we, I'll, I'll find a link for that in the show. Didn't we have a sh- a show years ago with an episode about somebody who took like a poem to a a knife fight? Or something. Oh no! They, 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 these Russians were in a bar and they were arguing about um, Chekhov, and one of them murdered the other dude. Right. Right. You don't joke about Chekhov in a Russian bar. You just don't do it. No. You, know, you don't. You don't pull on Superman's cape. You don't spin and win. You, you don't argue about Chekhov with a drunk Russian. You just don't. You just do not do those things. Tell me about our last sponsor. All right. Our last sponsor this week is Legendary. It's by Stephanie Garber, published by Flatiron Books. Uh, If you were, if you read Caraval last year, this is the next book in that series. After being swept up in the magical world of Caraval, Donatella Dragna has finally escaped her father and saved her sister Scarlet from a disastrous arranged marriage. The girls should be celebrating, but Tella isn't yet free. She made a desperate bargain with a mysterious criminal and the time to repay the debt has come. This is the story, as I said, that began with Caraval, which was a breakout New York Times bestseller. Critics called it spellbinding, wondrous, imaginative, and now the wait is over. The sequel, Legendary, is now on sale. The stakes are higher, and the games have just begun. That's Legendary by Stephanie Garber. If you haven't read Caraval yet, you could pick that up and have a two-for-one. So thanks to them for sponsoring. 
Let's see. So um, in overdue news time, um, the Carnegie Medal, same Andrew Carnegie for, from Annotated this episode, mm-hmm. um, that the Carnegie Medal over in the UK is named after, which is a prize for children's book books, children's literature, excuse me, um, has responded to criticism over its lack of diversity, and its lack of diversity is total, in which the prize was established in 1935, but has never been won by a black, Asian, or minority ethnic. In the UK, they use this acronym BAME. We call them marginalized. I think it's supposed to – I don't know if the the groups line up directly because I think – anyway, but it's the same idea, right? They've all been white. Forever and this year, the long list, the twenty author long list, was all white, and people were like, "You know what? This is no longer cool." And the Carnegie Foundation, um, not the Carnegie Foundation, I'm sorry, the 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 people who organize the prize says that's not cool. So they're going to look at it. I don't know what they're going to do, um, but yeah. Uh, what? I think That's they're going to have in a this row? Is gonna, 80 in a row, 80 in a row. This is going to take some work for them because yeah. it comes on the heels of a study that we talked about a few months ago that found that only 4% of the children's book pu- books published in the UK in 2017 featured BAME characters and only 1% included a BAME main character. So there aren't like they have a pipeline problem over there as well. There are not very many children's books that are not by white people in the UK or that don't have white characters or that even have a character who's not white. So they're going to have to look and pay attention to what is there so that they can identify the good ones and float those up to being recognized. There's some unconscious bias playing into this. You know, I think we can assume that that's happening when you end up in these situations. Um, but also there are just not that many to start with. And so hopefully that this is also a continued call to the UK publishing industry, like the one that we have going on here in the US to um, sign more authors of color, publish more books by authors of color, publish more books that have characters of color for children. Uh, and then eventually those do appear in the field and can be recognized among all of their peers um, for being outstanding. So glad to see it. I think you were right at the headline there of Department of Overdue News. Yes, definitely. Um, let's end here. I guess this we could have wrapped this into earlier conversations about you know bookstores and whatever, but there's a campaign to promote physical bookstores that's going to happen this holiday season. Uh, well, really, it says September. Uh, excuse me, November 10th through November 16th. I thought it was around Black Friday or anything, but it's before all that. It's called the Love Your Bookstore Challenge. Um, it's put together by kind of a, a group of people interested in promoting physical bookstores, not physical retailers exclusively, publishers, um, the executive editor of Publishers Weekly, um, the CEO of Sourcebooks, and basically go into your local bookstore and take a picture of a book you like. There's something about this that feels very strange to <laughs> me, but maybe it's just the – the generalness of it, because like it doesn't—it's it's not about independent bookstores, which we've seen that kind of stuff before. Yeah. Theoretically, you go into half-price books and do this, which I guess is the point. It's—I feel what, just. Kind what do you think about it? I'm—I'm I'm like my my burrows are fried. <gasps> yeah, my bur- <laughs> your burrows are fried. Mine too. <laughs> um, It's—I'm—I just find it kind of why like. So you, right, you go into a bookstore, you take a picture of a book that you're excited to gift this holiday season or a book that you love or a book that you want to receive. You give it the love your bookstore hashtag and you can enter book related prizes. So like there's the incentive to do this Mm -hmm. is to win the prize. But like what else is supposed to happen? This feels like those tweets that are like, step one, do this. Step two, do this. Profit. Like, what? (laughs) Like your leg was broken. Like, (laughs) 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 like, (laughs) sorry, cut you off guard. Wasn't expecting a Humpty Dance reference in (laughs) this. What's even happening? Um, I just don't like, I have people forgotten that bookstores exist. Mm -hmm. Books do pretty well at the holiday season. Um, There are going to be campaigns about giving books for the holidays anyway, because every industry will do promotions for, you know, give this kind of thing. But like, I, 
am con- I'm just confused about what the what is the ROI? <laughs> yeah, here? right. I guess like it's, a, it's like other someone than took pixie dust and sprinkled it on a hashtag, and this came out. Like <laughs> right, like, like the, uh, what's I, I, I don't know it's, what is supposed strange. to be different after the Love Your Bookstore campaign than it was before it. I just don't understand the point. And maybe making people feel good about shopping in bookstores is a point. Like maybe that is an end all in itself. Yeah. Um, But I I don't think either of us is trying to be obtuse about this. I just don't understand the point. Yeah. I mean, when I say a hashtag brought to life, I'm I'm only sort of half joking, but I'm half serious. Like it's kind of like a social media thing. You want people to get out there and by seeing the people in your Instagram feed at their bookstores, like, hey, bookstores. So that part kind of makes a certain degree. I guess it's the general nature of it, where it's just your bookstore. Mm-hmm. Well, some people's bookstore is Amazon, but it's not that. So you're not included. So you got to... Like, you, what if I... Right. What if I do this in a Hudson Books in the Atlanta airport? That's what I'm saying. Like, th- we think of that as like the least... Um, the least noble. The least... The least <laughs> Yeah, the least noble uh, physical bookstore environment. But w- would the steering committee say, great? Or would they rather you go down to... Um, yeah. Right. What if I buy all my books at Costco? Yeah. Which maybe... Or, I mean, I guess by defining that way, the other one could be like, we hate the internet. Hashtag <laughs> no internet. Because that, that's like, what is it not? It's just the internet. <laughs> Well, yeah, and it does say that the challenge encourages readers and authors to go into their local bookstore. So either that acknowledges, like the the most generous reading of that is that it acknowledges that for most people, their local bookstore is not an independent one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or it ignores that for most people, their local bookstore is not an independent one. And it's really just an outside campaign to promote independent bookstores. I don't don't know. They're like Carl Lennertz, who is the executive director of the Children's Book Council, has a quote in this piece. Um, saying that any grassroots campaign to promote reading and great books is such a positive, spontaneous, in such a positive, spontaneous way is balm for America's soul during these times. And I got to tell you, my soul needs more balm than a bookstore hashtag. Uh, like, not that it's not know, worth trying, but my grassroots feel very balmed right now. I, I also <laughs> spare me the grassroots effort by the executives of these publishing entities. That that I don't know much about politics, but I don't think that qualifies as grassroots. I might be wrong about that. Um that's the tops of the trees, not uh, to extend the arboreal metaphor apparently. Uh, it's strange. I mean I don't think it's damaging, but No, there's uh, there's nothing bad about it. Like it yeah. won't hurt anyone to do this. I just Will it benefit anyone either? Like, does anyone get anything out of this other than doesn't good appear feelings? in their their right. um, their literature? Though it's telling. The first comment on the Publishers Weekly thing says, "Thank you, Sourcebooks, for being a fabulous partners in bookselling. Indies matter in the ecosystem." So, is this a way of saying independent bookstores without saying it? I, it's 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 strange. Um, love your bookstore, not books. I think that's also weird. Like, why not just do a thing where, what book are you going to give this year? Why not do that? Yeah, Penguin Random House, I think, usually does a, like, books for the holidays kind of thing that is that, of, like, you know, here are the books I'm giving or into this holiday season, and then for every use of the hashtag, they donate books to something as well. Um, Anyway, let's end on our obtuseness there. Let us know. Do you agree with us? Podcast at bookriot.com. Look at the thing. Tell us what you think. Is this cool? Is this interesting? Are you excited to do this? Is there some angle of this we're missing? I'd love to know. That's our that's our show. Go to find the show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. Go check out TBR. Go check out Annotated. Happy birthday, Book Riot. We'll talk to you guys later. Have a good one. <laughs>